Welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing produced by the Public Health Law Watch, the George Consortium Initiative at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the American Public Health Association's Law Section. We are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. For more information on COVID legal response, please check our reports, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19 and COVID-19 Policy Playbook, Legal Recommendations for a Safer, More Equitable Future. You can find them at www.covid19policyplaybook.org. In the report, 50 national experts assess the U.S. policy responses to the pandemic and provide concrete recommendations on how federal, state, and local leaders can better respond to COVID-19 and future pandemics. I'm Wendy Parmet, Faculty Director for the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University School of Law. With me are Lori Freeman, the Chief Executive Officer of the National Association of County and City Health Officials, and Jill Kruger, Director of the Northern Region Office for the Network for Public Health Law. Please use the hashtag COVIDLawBriefing for any questions or comments in response to this. So throughout the pandemic, we know that governors and mayors and other executive officials have used emergency powers, um, often not public health emergency powers, but their general sort of disaster powers and civil emergency powers, um, to issue a very wide range of orders. They've shuttered businesses, they've issued stay-at-home orders, they've uh, ordered people to wear masks. Um, many of these orders have now been, or most, have now been lifted, but they've also become increasingly controversial over the past year plus. And what we've seen in the last several months is that legislatures around the country are considering bills to restrict, reform, claw back, clarify executive authority. And in some cases, states have enacted some measures. So what we're here today is to talk about those and to think about what these new legislative initiatives may mean for public health law and our ability to respond to another pandemic going forward. So I'd like to start with you, Jill. And if you could give us just a very brief sort of bird's eye view of what's been going on. Sure. Thanks, Wendy. And thanks for including me in the conversation. I mean, and as you suggested, we're really talking about hundreds of bills which have been introduced in nearly every state. Um, now, in the report that the network created with, with NATO and other partners, um, you know, including the CDC Foundation, Johns Hopkins University, University School of Public Health, Change Lab Solutions, and the Local Solutions Support Center. Um, and it occurs to me that, that we should, um, maybe I can drop a link to the report in, in the chat, but um, the, the title of the report is Proposed Limits on Public Health Authority, Dangerous for Public Health. So in that report that, that the network created with NATO, we chose to focus on examples from 15 different states. Now, when we started the project, um, which I, I think was late April or, or early May, something like that. Um, we didn't know which of these bills would pass, um, but we wanted to find, it's not a comprehensive study, but we wanted to find good examples of the kinds of bills that were being considered in state legislatures across the country. And so what we found by looking at these bills is that many of them would change the nature and the allocation of emergency powers and public health authority. Um, and so the nature, like the kinds of things that these um, you know, officials can 
do um, in terms of allocation, you know, who has, has those powers? So there were five different types of bills we found. Bills that would shift um, either general or emergency public health authority. The shifts might occur from local public health, one lo- from the local public health agency to another local entity, usually an elected ballot body like a city council or a county board. Um, so that was one category. Maybe a shift from the local public health agency to the state public health agency or the state legislature. That was another category of bills. A third category was a shift in, in authority from the state public health agency to the governor or to the state legislature. Uh, fourth was a shift from the state executive, such as the governor or the, the health officer, um, to the state legislature. And then the fifth category was more about the nature of the authority um, rather than who would have the authority, a prohibition of certain types of state or local public health orders. Now, some of those bills were focused on the COVID context, and some of them were not limited to COVID. Some were, were just an absolute prohibition on certain types of state or local public health orders. And what we concluded is that many of these proposed bills would impede effective governmental response to public health emergencies, as well as day-to-day work that public health does, protecting, um, promoting, and improving health in their communities. Um, so just a, a really serious threat to, to human health and safety. So Lori, maybe you could pick up there and talk a little bit about which of these laws or examples of laws or types of provisions that cause particular concern to your members and why. So great to be with you all today. Thank you also for including uh, NACHO in the conversation. You know, all of these um, pieces of legislation are concerning in one respect or another. A few come to mind that are particularly alarming, but they all are, are concerning. Um, in Montana, for example, um, a new law there would prohibit the local uh, board of uh, health emergency orders from separating those individuals who are not ill, uh, but reasonably believed to be infected or exposed to a disease, so basically uh, banning the use of quarantine. And in a prohib- uh, prohibition of quarantine order is really um, paramount to paralyzing public health in its tracks. Um, the ability to identify, isolate, quarantine are really time-proven, effective public health disease mitigation practices that have been used over centuries, dating back to Paul Revere and the cholera outbreaks in Massachusetts. And quarantine is one of the core public health tenets of infection control. Um, it's one; it's essential in doing contact tracing. So, without the ability to quarantine in any situation, public health is basically paralyzed during an outbreak of a deadly disease whether it's COVID or Ebola or some other disease we haven't even heard of yet. Um, one other example in Ohio, a new law there um, will allow the, the state legislature alone to rescind a, rescind a public health order or action by a state health department or a director of health to control or spread um, the control the spread of contagious or infectious disease. These types of legislation in general are extreme in that uh, public health expertise may be overridden by individuals or groups of individuals who have no training or expertise in public health. It's also imperative to be able to act quickly in an emergency and to be able to respond on that ground level to threats immediately. And what if a state legislature is not in session or um, uh, and they have that power to impact or overturn a public urgent public health action? Many times 
minutes, hours matter in public health emergencies. So introducing another layer of approval or ability to rescind these orders um, if in effect um, shuts down the ability of our public health officers on the ground to, to really be able to respond quickly to emergencies and to do what they're trained to do, which is to protect the lives of the communities that they serve. So let me follow up with that, Lori. I mean, I think I think we all know that everything didn't go swimmingly in the past 15 months plus, as we know, and as we described in the in the playbook and the report. Um, so looking back and you know, learning the lessons um, of where we are, are there any of these bills um, that you think actually may be useful, right? Or that could be worthwhile reforms, or are there reforms that you wish you could, you know, that your members might wish were proposed and enacted? It's hard to find um, some of the good in many of the pieces of legislation that are highlighted by the report that we did with the network, because those highlighted on, you know, really the, the limitations to public health authority. I will say we've seen some positive legislation around protections for our public health officials across the country. And um, also during the pandemic, um, you know, our public health officials have been on the front lines of those front lines. Um, and as a result of issuing orders, have all been, you know, had the brunt of the punishment in terms of receiving threatening calls and having their workplaces vandalized, their homes vandalized, and, um, you know, having people not um, believe the, the value of the public health order. So we've seen some pieces of legislation um, in California and um, in Colorado that attempt to protect um, the information of public health officials and, and keep that information private. Um, these are called doxing laws that um, prevent basically the sharing of a person's private information, such as address or phone number, um, when, when they hold certain positions. And so these public health officers who have been at the brunt of this punishment may be protected by some of those laws. And then outside of that, um, there may be times when a check and balance is an appropriate measure to um, to take place um, uh, to you know to ensure that um, that there's not just a unilateral decision being made uh, and so there could be legislation that's positive in introducing um, a little bit of that but it, it's hard to see how um, many of these laws would be actually beneficial to responding public health emergencies on the ground thank you Jill your report talks about about the role of ALEC. Can you uh, help folks know what ALEC is and um, the role it's been playing in this movement to change public health laws? Sure. ALEC is uh, an acronym that stands for the American Legislative Exchange Council. And, um, you know, they've been around for about 40 years and count many, many legislature legislators among their members. Um, one recent count said about one in four state legislators um, was a member of ALEC. And so ALEC um, is supported by a number of interests, mostly interested in deregulation of, of businesses, um, kind of has a deregulatory agenda um, and provides a kind of national coordinating function for, for these types of, of initiatives. So historically, 
preemption has been one of their key legal strategies. Um, but in, in, in this instance, um, during the pandemic, um, Alec uh, crafted, drafted and, and um, prepared um, model legislation. And it, it seems pretty clear that, that many of these bills track that language pretty closely. Thank you. So, you know, it seems clear to me that um, many factors have led to this movement to cut back, restrict public health powers, in addition to Alex. But I think it's worth thinking a little bit about maybe how we think about public health powers. And one of the things I think we have seen during the past year plus is that power alone doesn't necessarily help all that much, right? You have to, it's great to have power, but you also need the public's support and their willingness and their ability to comply. So I guess I just want to ask each of you to end with your thoughts about the lessons learned and what can public health officials do differently next time, regardless of the powers that may be on the books? Because again, we know that power alone did not solve the problem this time. So I wonder if either of you have any thoughts on this. I'm happy to jump in first. Um, you know, I, it, it's um, it, first of all, you know, as we know, this is a pandemic that many of us in our lifetimes have never like, experienced before. And this includes our public health officials and the departments that serve them. They are trained in, in most cases in um, crisis communications and, um, and utilize those skills to communicate with the public that they serve. Uh, but all, you know, really, uh, it becomes a moot point if there's not a well-structured response at all levels of the government. And I, I truly believe, you know, one of the challenges of this pandemic was just getting that alignment of guidance and messaging the whole way from uh, the, the CDC, HHS, the, the White House, the federal side down to the states and the whole way down to that local level and in trying to maintain that apolitical nature of public health, which is usually so trusted in a community. So we've got to keep politics out of it. And of course, resources are always an issue too, aside from the alignment. Only about 600 of our 3,000 health departments have public information officers. The rest have to handle it on their own, either the local health officer or somebody that might be less trained than we may need in situations like pandemic. So there's a lot of things I think that we will learn from this pandemic in terms of our um, relationship with our communities and, and how to um, ensure that politics is kept out of public health um, and to rebuild that trust um, that we've always had in public health officials to do and say and, um, and, and enact the right orders to keep our uh, community safe and healthy. Thanks so much. Jill, any thoughts? Sure. Well, I would, I would definitely endorse Lori's comments about the importance of communications. And, and I remember, you know, early on in the pandemic, it might have been February or March or maybe April, there was an article in The Lancet with, with lessons about isolation and, and quarantine orders. And it talked about, you know, invoking people 
people's sense of altruism, um, you know, as much as, as you know, bringing down the hammer. And I, I think that is, is a key lesson. And I think consistent messages throughout every level of, of government really, really help invoke that sense of altruism. You know, that that said, um, I also like what Laurie said about lessons we will learn. I, I, I think there are some lessons we learned real fast. Um, and then there are lessons we will learn as we have the chance to, to come out of the pandemic and reflect and, and engage in things like after action reports and really do that self-examination that the public health has done before. And that this change effort may span years, just as it did after September 11th, 2001, um, the sort of reflection. And we've seen actually some um, positive um, moves in this direction in state legislatures. And in terms of those questions about where are the positive examples, bills, um, you know, in states as diverse as, you know, New Jersey, New Mexico, and Alabama, setting up commissions to study what happened, um, you know, and, and drawing from a broad set of, you know, government leaders, business leaders, public health experts, um, you know, members of communities of color, low-income communities, frontline workers, um, to really reflect and have those discussions and debates. Um, states that have said, let's have greater transparency when we're issuing these public health orders and lay out the reasoning. Um, you know, and that's, there's some tension there because when you're issuing these orders, you're scrambling. I mean, minutes and hours count. Um, so yes, you're gathering the evidence, you're relying on the evidence, um, but there's sort of a difference between having that evidence at your fingertips for your own analysis and then articulating it in a way for the public that takes time. So there's a tension there when when we demand greater transparency, when when from a First Amendment perspective, we say, oh, you have to you have to choose the least restrictive alternative, um, you know, to articulate that in the order so it doesn't look like, you know, a post hoc rationalization. Um, you know, there's only so much burden we can place on an overburdened system. But, you know, and, and Wendy, I know you're on the Uniform Law Commission. Um, so I think some of these efforts to take it out of a political environment or, or to, you know, to some extent, let the heat cool down will, will really help with, with some of those efforts. Well, thank you. I think both of you is really thoughtful and helpful. I really want to thank you uh, for the conversation today. This will be continuing. So um, maybe we'll circle back and see where we are in a couple of months. Thank again, Laurie Freeman and Jill Kruga for speaking with us today. The recordings are available on Public Health Law Watch's website and the shows are archived um, by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Collick. We will see you next time. Please stay safe and get vaccinated. Thanks so much.